Tavish Molly, I'm thrilled to have you join us today on our program. What an amazing first hour with Michael Lomax, Dr. Michael Lomax, who is in studio, celebrating the 80th anniversary of the United Negro College Fund. Uh, they just received a $100 million gift from the Lilly Foundation, and they've raised uh, now a billion dollars just in the last five years. So the UNCF is going strong, even as the Supreme Court uh, and others are turning their way against uh, or from uh, corrector programs like affirmative action, diversity, equity, and inclusion. UNCF still doing what it uh, does so well. We congratulate them on their 80th anniversary and uh, 20 years as uh, president and CEO uh, uh, for Dr. Michael Lomax. And what a great, uh, what a great conversation. Uh, I am delighted in this hour to have uh, my friend and brother, uh, Jesse Jackson Jr., former congressman, uh, and James Zogby, uh, who we all know from his brilliant uh, polling work, uh, say nothing of his work on the Jackson campaign 40 years ago. Hard to believe it has now been 40 years since the iconic uh, ascent of Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr. Uh, and that amazing speech, I remember it like it was yesterday. Uh, I was just uh, about two years out of high school. I was a sophomore at Indiana University. And remember like it was yesterday, watching Jesse Jackson step to that podium at the Democratic National Convention in San Francisco, California. And I want to play, I'll jump in at the appropriate time, but just to uh, give you a sense of the the artistic genius and the brilliance, the eloquence, uh, not articulate. I hate when white folk call us articulate, the eloquence of one uh, Jesse Jackson. Just, Just listen for a second. Sit back and hear Jesse Jackson in 1984, 40 years ago, at the Democratic National Convention. Tonight, we come together bound by our faith in a mighty God with genuine respect and love for our country and inheriting the legacy of a great party. The Democratic Party, which is the best hope for redirecting our nation on a more humane, just, and peaceful course. This is not a perfect party. We are not a perfect people. Yet we are called to a perfect mission. Our mission to feed the hungry, to clothe the naked, to house the homeless, to teach the illiterate, to provide jobs for the jobless, and to choose the human race over the nuclear race. We are gathered here this week to nominate a candidate and adopt a platform which will expand, unify, direct, and inspire our party and the nation to fulfill this mission. My constituency is the desperate, the damned, the disinherited, the disrespected, and the despised. They are restless and seek relief. They have voted in record numbers. They have invested the faith, hope, and trust that they have in us. The Democratic Party must send them a signal that we care. I pledge my best not to let them down. There is the call of conscience, redemption, expansion, healing, and unity. Leadership must heed the call of conscience. Redemption, expansion, healing, and unity, for they are the key to achieving our mission. 
Time is neutral and does not change things. With courage and initiative, leaders change things. No generation can choose the age or circumstance in which it is born. But through leadership, it can choose to make the age in which it is born an age of enlightenment, an age of jobs, and peace and justice. Only leadership, that intangible combination of gifts, discipline, information, circumstance, courage, timing, will, and divine inspiration can lead us out of the crisis in which we find ourselves. Just a little taste, just a little taste of Jesse Jackson. Uh, Forty years ago, the Democratic National Convention here in the state of California, specifically the city of San Francisco, uh, hard to believe four decades have passed since uh, he stepped to that podium. That was 84. Of course, he came back again in 88. But we are celebrating for the rest of this hour, 40 years of this iconic moment uh, with Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. We are joined in a moment by his son, former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr., uh, and his deputy campaign manager, James Zogby. I look forward to this dialogue when we come forward on Tavis Smiley. Interrogating and unpacking. That's what we do around here. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. He's rooting for everybody black. Everybody black. black. More of Tavis Smiley coming your way right now. Right now. I'm ready for this conversation with Jesse Jackson Jr., former congressman, and James Zogby, uh, the poster, the brilliant poster, James Zogby, who was deputy campaign manager for Jesse Jackson 40 years ago. It was indeed 40 years ago on this day. The Reverend Jesse Jackson competed in the Iowa caucus, his first of many contests for president. Uh, he would go on to win Alabama and Louisiana and place third in the Democratic primary with 18% of the national vote behind the nominee, Walter Mondale and Gary Hart. Uh, I discussed earlier with Michael Lomax in the first hour, and I do it all the time. I never, ever miss an opportunity to remind people there is no Barack Obama if there is no Jesse Jackson who forced a change in proportional voting. We'll talk about that in this hour. But first, some breaking news, and I, I'm going to put my friend Jesse Jackson Jr. on the spot uh, to get his take on this. I'm sure he has a take on it, as I do. I'm sure Zogby does as well. Uh, but it's big news. For the third time, this just out, for the third time, the United States used its veto on the Security Council to kill a resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire in the Israel-Hamas war. Washington has proposed, and we say Washington, we really mean the Biden administration, has proposed an alternative asking for a halt in fighting as soon as practicable. That's their language, a halt in the fighting as soon as practicable. Jesse Jackson Jr., former congressman, your father has wrestled with this issue for decades. Here we are all these years later. Still wrestling with this. What uh, What's your take on the U.S. now for the third time vetoing a Security Council resolution demanding an immediate ceasefire, my friend? It's outrageous. Um, and first, I want to thank you for having me on your program. I'm so honored to be back with you, my brother Tavis, and so grateful to share this space with Jim Zogby. Uh, I'm so, so very grateful for that. Here's the uh, here's the great uh, the great challenge um, as we reflect upon uh, Jesse Jackson forty years. Uh, there seems to be a lack of courage on the Democratic side of the aisle and progressives amongst many Americans generally to understand the nature of the devastation that is being wreaked and wreaked upon the people of the Gaza Strip, the Palestinian people. And uh, there's just no justification for the sheer amount of civilians 
in the name of down Hamas that can be justified in the minds of any reasonable person. And so it's not just a difficult day for the United States in terms of our moral authority at the United Nations before the entire world. We're all watching it every day. We all want something to happen. Not only is it a moral disgrace, which Reverend Jackson said in 1984, it's also a political disgrace mm. because as we reflect upon uh, the lack of courage uh, to stand up, it could very well cost Joe Biden the state of Michigan. It's certainly costing him amongst young voters uh, in every state in the union at a time when democracy itself is being jeopardized. Dr. King probably said it best. We are global citizens, and we don't get to shirk the responsibility that we have as Americans. Those are our bombs that are raining on those children and those women and those families. That's our uh, weaponry and our tax dollars that are devastating the Gaza Strip. It is our annual aid to Israel uh, that uh, has been unabated since the Balfour Agreement in 1948. It's the infrastructure that we have provided uh, the Israeli state that is allowing them to do this, and I find it personally very offensive and, and unacceptable. Mm. Uh, put him on the spot, uh, but he, as always, comes through with a powerful uh, discourse on uh, this Israel-Hamas situation in the U.S. again today for the third time using its veto vote uh, for a U.N. Security Council resolution for an immediate ceasefire, calling instead for a different proposal uh, to uh, have a ceasefire as soon as practicable. I don't know what that means, but I'll leave that where it is for the moment. Uh, one, one, other, one other follow-up on that, uh, Jesse Jackson Jr., and then we'll move forward. What do you make, then, of the Biden administration's tone deafness on this issue? Uh, it will show up in next, next November. Mm. Very, very likely to show up at the Democratic uh, convention in Chicago. They are expecting, uh, the Democrats themselves are expecting at least 200,000 protesters to descend upon Chicago between the 18th and the 22nd in the city of Chicago. President uh, Frederick uh, Douglas Haynes, the president of the Rainbow Coalition, along with Reverend Al Sharpton and other civil rights organizations, are in the early planning stages of hosting a conference at the same time, not to interfere with the Democratic Convention. They meet between 5 and 10 o'clock. But we're hoping that James Ogby and other peace activists at the same time uh, will find their way to a conference on the disinherited uh, to discuss and to take advantage of the national media that will descend upon Chicago that we might impact the party's platform in just a few months. Uh, by bringing tens of thousands of people to the city of Chicago uh, who are very concerned about the tone deafness. Jang Zabi, don't want to put you on the spot. Anything you'd like to add to that? If not, I'm ready to talk about the campaign 40 years ago, sir. Well, just, just a couple things to have us in the beginning. That is, I was a deputy campaign manager. There were a number yes. of us. Um, I got promoted by you and, and others, but I, I was just a lowly deputy. And the other is my brother is the domestic pollster. My polling is all in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, it's John who is the, the guy who made a brand out of the family name. But I want to just share with you, the we had a summit in Chicago uh, back in January uh, with Reverend Jackson, with the Operation Push, my organization, the Arab American Institute, uh, Fellowship of Reconciliation, and a number of other organizations. And um, we brought together leaders, uh, interfaith leaders across the country. And we had 
proposal for ceasefire, humanitarian aid, and conditioning aid. It reverberated, and we saw the impact in Chicago with the city council passing the resolution. But aside from all that, I had a chance to speak with Reverend a few times during the the weekend. You know he has difficulty sometimes uh, with the the Parkinson's, but I'll never forget as I was leaving, I had to rush out to get a plane home. I just stopped by and I said, Reverend, I'm going. And he just looked at me and he said, remember, the babies are dying every day. Mm. And I never forgot that, obviously, and I don't think I ever will forget it because it, it, it shows the extent to which this is on his mind still. And, 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 you know, remember the babies are dying every day. Um, and and they are. And so when the U S says, this is not the time for this resolution, when the hell is the time? When is the time? 29,000 people dead. And it's not the time. Are we going to wait? What was their magic number? Like 40,000, 50,000. At what point do we say enough is enough? This is only taking lives and accomplishing nothing other than killing innocent people. Yep. Uh, this story has legs, obviously, and uh, it'll be uh, uh, developing today and in the days ahead. But in case you've just tuned in for the third time, uh, the U.S. has used its uh, veto power uh, to reject uh, a U.N. Uh, Security Council resolution um, killing that resolution, in fact, demanding an immediate ceasefire. Mm-hmm. In the Israel-Hamas war, uh, the Biden administration has proposed an alternative asking for a halt in fighting, quote, as soon as practicable, practicable, close quote. You heard uh, James Zogby say a moment ago, who knows what practicable means? How many have to die before they call for the ceasefire? We digress on that for the moment. Again, that story is developing. So, James Zogby, uh, I, I take your point that many of us have uh, given you a promotion. You should be just—you should just take it. <laughs> just take promotion, man. Take it. Don't turn it away. I, I got it. Uh, I got okay. It. Thank you. Okay. But take take me back inside. We'll get Jesse Jackson Jr.'s thoughts, of course, as we move through this hour. But take me back to what you recall uh, forty years ago. Two things. One is um, we're at a dinner. Uh, I had invited Reverend to speak. Uh, he leaned over when I was sitting at the table, leaned over and he said, I want you to join my campaign. And I said, but Reverend, I've been organizing my community for the last eight, uh, four years. I don't know if I can give it up. And he said to me, we'll do more for your community in the next four months than you've been able to do in the last four years. And he was absolutely right. The excitement, the energy that it created among Arab Americans, as I saw people of every stripe in the rainbow, get energized by this campaign. Um, he actually, it was a miracle. Uh, it was people who had not felt included in politics, had not felt energized by politics, didn't have hope, didn't have a dream of a better future, being energized by this man and his vision and his voice. And it had a lasting impact. Not only on my community, I mean, our organization, the Arab American Institute, grew out of that campaign. First time we'd ever been involved in a presidential campaign, candidates had given money back to us, rejected our endorsement, didn't want to have the touch of an Arab uh, involved in their effort. Mm. We were all of a sudden, the door opened, and it was Jesse Jackson who did it. The other uh, thing I remember, it happened years later, um, I was involved also in 88. And it was great. Uh, we obviously did so much more that year. But there's a public golf course here in the heart of the district, Rock Creek Park. Um, and a lot of the old postal workers 
go and hang out in the afternoons after they're done their work. And I was there with my, my, my son. He was, I think, freshman in high school. And uh, we were on the putting green. Old guy comes up to me, and he looks at me, and he says, you Zogby, right? I said, yeah. He said, Jackson, right? I said, yeah. He said, 84, the pure one. And it was the way he said that, 84, the pure one, it made me think that actually what, what 84 was. We, we didn't have big aspirations for winning. There was a sense that we were changing the dynamic of politics. There was a, a sort of a purity of spirit of the way we went about doing it and uh, the energy we created, the, the hope we generated. I mean, I looked standing behind Reverend and looking in the face of people hearing him talk, it was, I remember one time he turned to me and he said, what, what do they expect from me? Cause they were passing their babies up for mm. him to just touch. You know, he, he sort of reached people in a way that they had not been reached um, in a long time. Mm. And they felt that need. And he, um, he, he actually turned history around in yeah. a very significant way in 84, Yeah, in 84. Yeah. Um, Jesse Jackson Jr., I'm honored to have you on this program as always. Um, I, w- I want to ask a, a little bit later here um, to uh, James's point. Your father did not win in 84, but what did he accomplish? We'll talk about what he did get done, the coattails, the political coattails, all that came out of that later in this hour. But I want to start uh, in the few minutes I have here before we come forward with just your, your remembrances of being on the stage, being in San Francisco. What, what do you recall from that night in 84? It was uh, extremely powerful. Um, he began the process of raising the hopes and expectations of an entirely different generation, a new generation of Americans, like John F. Kennedy spoke about in his, in his inaugural uh, address in, in 1960. And so standing on that stage, uh, I in my own way resolved that I could, too, uh, serve my country, either in Congress, the United States Senate, or the presidency of the United States, and an entire generation of young African-American progressive um, candidates, Arab-American candidates, female uh, candidates, uh, campaign operatives, Mignon Moore, Donna Bill, Leisha Green, uh, Cleo Fields. Uh, when you think about the congresspersons who benefited from that campaign, mm. Bobby Rush, um, uh, Benny Thompson was a supervisor in the Jesse Jackson campaign. But most recently, uh, he uh, was the head of the inquiry into the January 6th. All of these are Jesse Jackson people who were foot soldiers and foot organizers on the ground and eventually accomplished great things themselves. Yeah. Um, how do you, all these years later, how do you read those coattails? I said earlier in our first hour today, talking to Michael Lomax, uh, that there is no Barack Obama without Jesse Jackson changing the rules. We'll get to that. Uh, but the point I'm making now, uh, and want to get your take on Jesse, is the coattails. There, there has been no person in the history of this country who has had stronger, longer political coattails than your father. So I, I want to say this briefly because we're to a break, but when I compare the significance of the 84 campaign with what was really going on in the world, you have to kind of reflect on Martin Luther posting his 95 theses on the church at Wittenberg in 1517. Mm. I mean, it just started Protestantism. People within the context of the church were able to protest uh, uh, and it 
protest movement, Protestantism, mm. protest movement. It was something other than Catholicism. And all of us, many of us who are Christians today, owe our very faith and our activism to the idea that it is okay to nonviolently protest in the context of our religion. So when you think about the death of Dr. King in 1968, a presidential election year, you think about Nixon to Ford in 1972 and Watergate. You think about in 1976, Jimmy Carter. And then in 1980, Ronald Reagan with a particularly a peculiar form of meanness, welfare queen, um, uh, suggesting African-Americans were lazy, and, and a new conservative movement uh, to downsize the federal government and return powers to the states. Uh, when, Jeff, when, Re- when Ronald Reagan as candidate Reagan showed up in my father's office in 1979, he sat down for 20 minutes outside of my father's office talking to my Uncle Saint. He thought my Uncle Saint was Reverend Jackson, mm-hmm. and after Uncle Saint listened to him for 15 minutes, he said, hold on one minute, let me go get Reverend Jackson. Let me go get Reverend Jackson. And he took, he took Ronald Reagan. Y'all should Google that picture. Uh, he takes him into Reverend Jackson's office. He talks for another 45 minutes. And Reverend was so unimpressed with Reagan in 1980, he said to himself, I can be president myself. And by night before he was running. <laughs> On that note, when we come, that's why, that's why I, love, I love Jesse Jackson Jr. I love anybody with a great backstory. Ronald Reagan sitting in the hallway talking to, <laughs> talking to the wrong person for 20 minutes, not knowing it was not Jesse Jackson. Uh, that reminds me of the story you recall, Jesse, when he was uh, at a cabinet meeting and did not know who his own transportation secretary was ain't, ain't with one black person at the table and he didn't know who his own transportation secretary was i digress on that and that was before he served two full terms and then they told us he had alzheimer's i digress on that point a lot more to cover celebrating jesse jackson's iconic campaign 40 years ago with jesse jackson jr and james zogby right now on Tavis smiling for all the freedom loving folk this is Tavis smiling i feel like free. More honesty than you can handle. More empowerment than you can imagine. You're tuned in to Tavis Smiley. Smiley. Tavis Smiley and former Congressman Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby, who was a a deputy campaign manager (laughs) during Jesse Jackson's historic campaign 40 years ago. We are celebrating in this hour the 1984 ascent of Jesse, uh, the Reverend Jesse L. Jackson Sr., with his son and James Zogby, I'm again pleased to have him on this program. Uh, Jesse, you, you made this point earlier, and I want to come back to this and ask you to draw, uh, to make a comparison and a contrast, if you will. So we all know, those of us who know political history, know what happened in Chicago in 1968. We know the Fannie Lou Hamer story, the Dr. King, uh, of course, is, is assassinated. Uh, that is, it, was, it was a tumultuous year. So you got, you got Bobby Kennedy killed. You got Dr. King assassinated. You've got the convention in Chicago. All hell broke loose at that convention in 68. I am wondering if you might uh, share more of your thoughts on then and now, of course, now being 2024, a few months from now, back in Chicago again in a very tumultuous period of American history. I'm not so sure, Tabith, and I think you question that much has really changed mm. in a real sense. And I say that because if you think about it, the only thing that's missing from the Martin Luther King Jr. narrative at age 39 is that he's four years older than the Constitution requires of him to run for president. He dies at 39 years old. Mm-hmm. He's assassinated. He's killed at 39 years old. But look at his mind. He's organizing a poor people's campaign. 
He's organizing workers in Memphis, Tennessee. He's marching with Rabbi Abraham Heschel. He's identifying with Nelson Mandela in South Africa and calling for the end of apartheid. I mean, Dr. King is really a global citizen in 1968 in ways that some of us were still fighting for the neighborhood and fighting with the Panthers and fighting for black power and fighting for something in our local schools. Dr. King was a Nobel laureate. Mm-hmm. And he saw the whole country, and he even wrote a speech that he never got a chance to deliver called America's Going to Hell. Mm-hmm. But I want to make this one point really, really clear. In 1968, it is American bombs that are being dropped on children and their families and their mothers in Vietnam. And Dr. King became immensely non-popular when he came out against the Vietnam War. In 2024, it is American bombs that are being dropped in the Gaza Strip. And we just vetoed a ceasefire for the third time. And for Joe Biden and the Democrats to think that there are not consequences for that in 2024 is just a misread of history. It's just outrageous because the pro-peace community is certainly not going to stand by and watch these innocent children in Palestine get bombed by the Democratic Party. It's just not going to happen. It's not going to happen. It's a it's a it's a it's a serious setup, James Zogby, for me to ask, and I will now. What then, given what Jesse Jackson Jr. has just laid out, do you expect to happen in Chicago this summer? I don't think there's any way to avoid uh, the fact that there will be uh, problems for the Democratic Party establishment. Um, there is a genuine upset. I know that there are plans for an alternative, a people's convention. I know groups around the country are mobilizing. Uh, I have been doing work on the Middle East for 50 years and uh, have been startled by, you know, back 40 years ago, we were in front of the White House, 50 people, and what you heard was a distinct Arabic accent to the, the people chanting. Today, it is as diverse a coalition that is reminiscent of uh, from the Women's March to the Black Lives Matter March to the uh, March for Our Lives, the gun rally, uh, the anti-gun rallies. Um, it is a spontaneous eruption of support, uh, as, as, as Jesse noted, among young people, uh, among uh, people of color, um, and they are upset. Progressive Jews, not just the Arab Americans, but, I mean, there are in many of these cities where people are shutting down the, the main streets or the bridges or the train stations. It's progressive Jews who are taking the lead on that. And this has touched a nerve in folks across the board yeah. um, that is uh, quite striking. And I don't certainly won't dissipate in November. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, in, uh, in, in the summer. And I tell you, in the polling that we've done, the difference between attitudes toward Biden, toward his policy in Gaza, among voters 29 and under, and among non-white voters, it's night and day between them and older voters and white voters. And these are the, supposed to be the Democratic coalition, yeah. and they're going to lose them. It's going to be it's going to be hot a hot summer in Chicago, um, it is. and it certainly is. when this convention when this convention jumps off. Jesse Jackson Jr. As you well know, well for that matter, we all know, Chicago is not just your hometown, not just the hometown of your father, Reverend Jesse Jackson Sr. It is also the hometown of one Barack Hussein Obama, who will no doubt be on stage in Chicago in the midst of all this drama. 
uh, happening in Chicago this summer. Um, I uh, took the opportunity to explain this to those listening in the first hour. I'll give you the opportunity to explain it uh, in this hour. But for those who who do not understand what I mean when I say there is no Barack Obama, if there is no Jesse Jackson changing the rules, take it away, sir. Well, so there's no doubt about that. In 1984, Reverend Jackson campaigned Iowa and New Hampshire and the remaining states. The Democratic Party had a system for selecting its delegate process which included whoever won the state wins all of the delegates. In other words, it was a system that was designed to drive other candidates out of the race. Mm-hmm. Uh, if a city won or someone with big name recognition got out of Iowa, they went to New Hampshire with the wind at their back. They usually did well in New Hampshire, and then Democrats began dropping out of the campaign because they couldn't survive. The problem is, of course, that Iowa is very rural, it's very white, but it doesn't reflect the Democratic base, which is African-American and Hispanic, American, Arab-American, and Jewish, and women, and young people. It is a very, very broad coalition. So if a woman runs in Iowa, historically, if an African-American, Reverend Jackson being the most serious to run, by the time they get to their base to ask for votes, well, the game is over. Mm-hmm. So what Reverend Jackson insisted at the Democratic Convention was every time he would come in second or third in a contest, he would have a press conference and says, now I got 500,000 votes last night, but where are my delegates? Mm. I got uh, 600,000 votes last night, but I came in third, but where are my delegates? So by the time we got to the convention, the Democratic Party changed the rules. I believe in that first rule change with uh, (coughs) Chairman Chuck Jim Zogby and I were both appointed uh, to the Democratic National Committee for the first time because they had to diversify and add delegates to the convention to reflect what Reverend Jackson had earned from voters that participated in the process. Some delegates had to give up their seats. Others had to change to reflect their support for Jesse Jackson. So by the time Barack Obama runs in 2006, 2008, What Barack Obama does not have to do is at the end of every state contest, he doesn't have to ask for his delegates because whatever percentage of votes that he got in Iowa, he got that percentage of delegates. He got them in New Hampshire. And Reverend Jackson also moved the South Carolina primary up to the third slot, which is how Joe Biden was elected. It's how Barack Obama's campaign was saved after Hillary's victory in New Hampshire. And so Reverend Jackson has changed the entire game uh, by changing the rules of the Democratic Party. And there you have it. There is no Barack Obama. There is no Jesse Jackson forcing that rule change. Uh, had the chain had the had the rules been the same when Obama ran as they were when Jesse first ran, Hillary Clinton would have been the nominee. Obama never would have been the nominee, and you might not have had him as the first African-American president. I digress for now. As we celebrate the 40th anniversary of the iconic campaign of Reverend Jesse Jackson in 1984 with Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby on Tavis Smiley. From the Merck Park with love, love, this is Tavis Smiley. Helping to make you the most knowledgeable person in your circle of friends. This is Tavis Smiley.
Tavis Smiley and Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby celebrating the 40th anniversary of Jesse Jackson's iconic 1984 presidential campaign. Jesse, right quick before I go back to James, um, uh, one, the, the question that most annoyed me, <laughs> I think you, you're probably laughing, I say this, Jesse, the question that most annoyed me in 84 and once again in 88 uh, when your father ran was, and this was a headline in any number of publications, what does Jesse want? What does Jesse want? You, you remember that annoying question, what does Jesse want? I remember it well, and I remember it on the cover of Time magazine. Exactly. What? 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 In retrospect, what do you make of that question? As if, as if, as if you have to want something. I mean, of course, everybody who runs wants something. But the fact that that, that the mainstream media—let's just call it what it is—the good white folk frame that question. What does Jesse want? As if dot dot dot. Take it away, Jesse. I thought he made the agenda very clear. They were asking the question to divert from the message that Jesse Jackson said at the opening of your program. He represented the disinherited. He represented the damned, the despised, the rejected stones. And he believed ultimately that they could become the cornerstones of our democracy. Indeed, making our nation, encouraging our nation, forcing our nation to live up to the true meaning of its creed. He said, our flag is red, white, and blue, but our nation is rainbow." Red, yellow, brown, black, and white were all precious in God's sight. We don't rise one group over and against the other. And he brought the likes of James Zogby and others uh, to the national stage in a way that has profoundly impacted and really redefined who we are as Americans. They forced us, Reverend Jackson forced us to think about it. Mm. And what's your sense now, Jesse, of the state of the Democratic Party? We often talk about the, the disarray on the other side of the aisle uh, and, and, and the, the, the MAGA forces. What's your sense, quickly, of the state of the Democratic Party? We run a presidential campaign, not in all 50 states. We run it in about 8 to 10 states, trying to get to certain electoral votes, one of which is the state of Michigan, uh, one of which is the state of Georgia, North Carolina, Virginia, these so-called purple states. We have Illinois. Uh, we struggle somewhat in the Midwest uh, with Michigan and uh, 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 um, Minnesota. And then we head to a couple of Western states. Any one of those states under the limited Democratic Party platform program, uh, and we lose the presidency of the United States, to the forces of Donald Trump, Ron DeSantis, and Nikki Haley. And so when we talk about why we need peace in the Middle East, why we need a ceasefire right now, it's in large part not only because it's morally right, but there is a significant number of voters who are Arab-American descent, Palestinian descent, who live in Michigan. And if we lose that state, uh, the children and the families that we serve in Compton on the south side of Chicago and Gary, Indiana and Atlanta, Georgia, and throughout our country where there are poor and working class people, all of them will lose when we lose a single state anywhere in the union because Joe Biden and the Democratic Party no longer has its finger in the dike of a flood of meanness and mean spiritedness that is likely to come from a second Trump turn. Her remaining moments with Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby celebrating 40 years since Jesse Jackson Sr.'s iconic run for president in 1984. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Unapologetically progressive. progressive. Unapologetically blind. Black, black, black.
You're tapped into Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. May Fresh Daily in the Mert Park, Los Angeles, California. You're listening to Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley and Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby Jr. James Zogby, rather, who was a uh, deputy campaign manager when Jesse ran uh, in 84. Um, James Zogby, uh, I'm running out of time here. Uh, your, your final thoughts on the legacy of Jesse Jackson's historic campaign in 1984. I wouldn't go forward to Barack Obama. I would go forward two years. Uh, Democrats won the Senate back, and it was largely the increase in black voter registration and black voter mobilization that did it. We won five southern states. It was Jesse that did it. Doug Wilder became first black governor of Virginia. Dave Dinkins was a mayor in New York City. This was all Jesse. Um, And so what Jesse wants, he wanted fairness. He wanted to lift up his people and other people who'd been disenfranchised, and he did it. And it was the lasting legacy of his campaign that transformed the structure of the Democratic Party and had impact almost immediately by stopping Reagan in his tracks, by giving Democrats decisive control of the Senate, which they had not had before he ran in 84. Mm. Same question for you, uh, Jesse Jackson, Jr., your, your, the, the legacy of that 84 campaign. <laughs> the legacy is Tavis Smiley. Mm. The legacy is Jim Zogby. The legacy is Rashida Tlaib and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The legacy is Jonathan Jackson in Congress. Uh, the legacy is uh, Sister Bush in Congress. So the, 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 the legacy is Raphael Warnock in the United States uh, Senate. And in a strange kind of way, the legacy from Jesse Jackson's home state because of his voter registration is Tim Scott uh, on the Republican side mm-hmm. because that's the broadness of that campaign. And all I can do, Tavis, is tell you that you, too, are part of that legacy. And I hope and pray that you will broadcast live August 18th through the 22nd in Chicago at the Disinherited Conference and allow many of these profound, young, bright, thoughtful peace activists and speakers to go live to L.A., articulate what's going on, and you do it from Chicago at the Disinherited Conference so that we can keep our message out there. We are not going to be sitting at a Democratic convention watching Democratic leadership tell us why the hell they need to bomb the hell out of children and parents and families in Gaza. That ain't happening, man. It's not going to happen in Chicago. Yeah. It's not going to happen. No, it's going to be quite the convention. And we have been um, uh, in our offices here trying to figure out uh, our movement uh, for that week. Uh, and so I, I, can, I can announce now that we will be in Chicago, uh, this uh, nationally syndicated program. Uh, when we started, we were just in L.A. Uh, we are now heard across the country. And uh, just uh, a few days from now, uh, I, haven't, I haven't said this publicly, but I will share it now since Jesse Jackson kind of uh, put me on the spot about being in Chicago. We will be there, uh, number one. Uh, but we are literally just days away from making another major announcement about a number of uh, uh, new markets that are carrying the Tabby Smiley Show. We're heard right now, of course, in Jesse's hometown of Chicago, WVON. We're in Philadelphia. We're in New Orleans. We're in a bunch of other places already. Uh, but we will be announcing in just a few days uh, some major, major, major markets uh, that have uh, uh, signed on to carry this program as well. So by the time we get to Chicago, we'll be heard everywhere in this country. And I'm excited about the announcement coming probably next week. Uh, we're just uh, crossing some T's and dotting some I's. Uh, but when I say major, you can't get much bigger than L.A. Uh, but there's a there's a there's there's one market a little bit bigger than L.A. Uh, that I've been excited about <laughs> getting in. And you can figure that out for yourself. But we'll be announcing that and some other new markets um, next week uh, in the national news media. For now, though, we thank. 
Jesse Jackson Jr. and James Zogby, who was a deputy campaign manager uh, 40 years ago. Uh, Jesse Jackson Jr., of course, has the honor of, of carrying that name. And what a grand legacy uh, his mother and father uh, have given this country. Uh, I never never leave out uh, Miss Jackie in these conversations. Uh, uh, what a wonderful family and what a wonderful legacy Jesse Jackson Jr. has inherited as we celebrate the iconic moment that his father ran for president back in 1984. James Zobby, good to have you on, my friend. All the best to you, sir. I'll see you in Chicago this summer, I hope. Thank you. I'll see you, too. Uh, all right. And Jesse Jackson, you Jr., you know I love you, man. Ain't nothing you can do about it. I just love you. Love you, brother. We're so proud of you, Tavis, and congratulations. Talk to you soon. Hour three of Tavis Smiley when we come forward.